Hi friends, I'm Amy Julia Becker and this is Love is Stronger Than Fear, a podcast about pursuing hope and healing in the midst of social division. In this season, we're talking about my book, White Picket Fences, and today's episode takes a look at the themes of Chapter 6, The Rotation of the Earth, with my guest Marlena Graves. Marlena and I have a chance to talk about wealth and poverty and faith and the freedom that comes from being filled up with God's love. I, I was so encouraged by this conversation, so I really hope the same is true for you. I'd love to hear what you think about the show, and I'd love for you to share it with other people if you find the same encouragement as I did. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Marlena, hello. Welcome to Love is Stronger Than Fear. It's really great to have you here. I want to introduce everyone to you a little bit. You are a writer, a teacher, an activist. You're the mother of three young girls. You are so much more than all that I've just said, but specifically right now, you've released a new book called The Way Up is Down, Becoming Yourself by Forgetting Yourself. And I just finished reading this beautiful book, so thank you for writing it. Congratulations. It is only 150 pages, but it is a rich book. It's one that, although I read it in a week because I knew I was talking to you, it's one I would recommend that people take some time to just really spend some time just letting it sink in because there's a lot of rich wisdom, but it's also really easy and fun to read because you are just a really accessible writer. So thank you for writing it. It's really great to have you here. And I would love to begin just by asking you to tell us about yourself, to tell us the broad strokes of your story and specifically your spiritual background, your family situation, both as a child and now, and the way all of those experiences led to this particular book coming out of you. Thank you, Amy Julia. You know, I'm very happy to be here with you. And thank you for the good words on the book. Uh, everything you said, I was hoping it would be. So, um, mm. so I don't know if it's because I wrote this book, but I've just, you know, I feel that when I describe my life, it's, I always start with, I grew up very poor. Yeah. Um, and I didn't realize how much of a influence and formational aspect that would have in my life. But, you know, the older I get, the more I see all the interconnectedness of how that formed me, poverty formed me. And so, you know, I was born in Puerto Rico and my dad was in the military. I lived there for a couple of years, maybe until I was three, then mm-hmm. moved to California for a little bit. And then the northwest Pennsylvania, where my dad was from. And I grew up speaking Spanish in my household. My dad understood a little bit, but I'm biracial. He did not speak Spanish, but I spoke Spanish first and then English was second. And because of where I grew up in northwestern Pennsylvania, it's a very impoverished area. Hmm. And I always wondered why my dad wanted to go there. I'm like, Dad, you know, you're really smart. Why would you move here? I asked him that years later. And I think it's just because what he knew and that's where he was from. It it was hard for me to understand. But so where I grew up was the biggest geographical school district in Pennsylvania, meaning we had to travel the furthest to get to school. Like, Hmm. for example, I think my school might have been 17 miles away. Yeah. And we lived on the outer edge of the school district. And so, uh, you know, I was on the bus for a while. And secondly, it was the days of long distance, and I wasn't very close to my friends, so I didn't talk on the phone a lot. You know how some kids yeah. growing up, they would be right. on the phone all the time. Huh. I, don't, I don't know if I would have been on the phone all the time, but I didn't really have the opportunity to be because it was long distance, no, you know, no cell phones. 
And so I'll talk a little bit about my spiritual life. I was baptized Roman Catholic, but because the Catholic Church was in town hmm. on uh, the opposite side, uh, the opposite direction of my school, my dad didn't, we didn't have a lot of gas and it wasn't in Spanish for my abuela, my grandma who lived with us too. Hmm. So she didn't go. So I just walked to a country church that was a mile away and I always wanted to walk to church. Like, no one had to send me to church. I just was so interested and in And did going. you walk, like, go by yourself? I went by myself, yes, like oh. 10-year-old. And I wasn't scared of anything except for the German shepherds at this one house that was oh, gosh. But I didn't. it was out in the country, so I didn't have fear of um, yeah. you know, getting kidnapped or anything. I don't know why. Maybe it was safer. I don't know. And so, but then I also evangelized as much as a child could my a younger brother and sister who are um, my younger brothers, four years younger, my sister, two years. Hmm. And uh, that, so they would walk with me. So we'd be like 10, eight and six walking to church. Um, And the church, it was a rural church, a rural community church. And they really just embraced us and loved us. And I have fond memories of that church, uh, Chapmanville community church. But another thing about myself that I didn't realize again until, you know, probably to my 30s is that I think I'm just a contemplative and monastic at heart because I didn't like listening. I didn't like watching TV. It was like nails on a chalkboard, Mm -hmm. but also maybe that I should clarify and say like daytime TV. And my mom and abuela who would live on and off with us, either in our house with us or across the street from us in a trailer, um, you know, they'd watch like the Spanish um, uh, Telemundo, the Spanish soap operas and stuff. And I just, and not just that, like Young and the Restless. <laughs> right, right. the I just could not listen to it. So I would always be outside hmm. helping my dad to cut and split wood um, and stack wood so that we had enough money for gas so he can get to work. And hmm. uh, so to summarize, we were geographically isolated. And I would say culturally because yeah. it was out in the country. Uh, we were and sometimes, you know, school lunch would be my only food, my mm-hmm. lunch, or uh, until the next paycheck, or there would be very little in the refrigerator. And I, from about the years of 10 to 14, I read the Bible from two to four hours a day, depending on what I was mm-hmm. doing, depending on what homework I had, because I really could identify with the people in Scripture, especially in the like, Exodus, I would picture myself with them crossing the Red Sea on dry, you know, on dry land with the towers of, of water on either side of me, the walls of water. And I I think it's at Lexio Divina, just getting right into the story. I just did that naturally in yeah. scripture. And I always figured, you know, if God could do the things that he did for people in the Old and New Testaments, that why couldn't he do it for me? Like mm-hmm. I just, you know, maybe like a child, you know, you talk yeah. about that in your book. Like God said, you know, ask me, or God said, forgive your enemies. I'm like, okay, I better do that. And <laughs> right. I, I, I forgot to say that Abuela was a good influence on me because I would. she only had a third grade education because her mother died in childbirth when she was eight years old in Puerto Rico, and she had like mm-hmm. 10 or 11 siblings. And so they had to all work with her father to, um, you know, just have food and whatever it is wow. they needed to do. And so so she would struggle to read her uh, Bible in Spanish out loud. And I would always see her doing it every single day. She had, the, mm. you know, the rosary next to her. She was faithfully reading scripture. And I think that's what probably 
just impressed itself on my soul. Not that she said, read your Bible, but I just saw her doing that. And I really loved her and looked up to her. Mm. And so I started doing that myself. And so that's kind of the early stories of my life. It was like a, I say it was like a monastic cell or a crucible where I grew up, but I didn't know it at the time. Right. Yeah. And you can see so many of those threads in your writing uh, as far as the ways in which you weave in both like Catholic and Orthodox writers, as well as the Protestant tradition and the ways you talk about your family and growing up in poverty. And um, I really do want to dig in some more to some of those questions. But I want to pause for a minute here because, all right, what does this all have to do with the themes of this podcast? For anyone who's been listening to this whole series, we're talking about White Picket Fences, the book that I wrote that came out a couple of years ago, and we have mostly been talking about race for the past couple of weeks because the early chapters in the book talk about my childhood, which was growing up in this functionally segregated town in North Carolina. But then I moved to Connecticut and have continued on to live in the Northeast where uh, my social position, as you and I have talked about before, is very different than yours, right, growing up, where I grew up with a lot of stability, affluence, educated parents, et cetera, et cetera. And so in chapters six and seven in particular in the book, I start writing about that, what is the role of socioeconomic status in kind of knowing who we are? and in finding ourselves divided from one another. And so I want to ask you, from your perspective in your own life and even just your own observations, how have you seen socioeconomic status create barriers? And have you ever seen those barriers broken down? Like what is able to actually break through that realm of division uh, and what keeps those divisions in place? Thank you. I I, I do see the divisions and I mean, I realized I was poor at a Christian college when students would like just dump all their like brand new furniture in the dumpsters at the end of, mm. of semesters and like, like things that were brand new because they couldn't fit it in their cars. And wow. so, yeah. you know, even community members would come and dumpster dive from the college, <laughs> you know, where I was at. Yeah. But I was like, Oh my word. I mean, that probably costs five or $600. You just, mm. there's nothing wrong with it. It's just, it couldn't fit back in your car or you just didn't want to mess with it. Cause it's too, um, you know, it's inconvenient to pack up and get rid of your things. And, you know, I was starting to realize I was like, wow. And I just didn't know how poor I was <laughs> mm-hmm. and, you know, just having brand new vehicles, you know, and, uh, college, you know, and, and people joke that, uh, especially educators, that some students drive better cars than their teachers or, right. you know, or professors. But um, that wasn't just it. I, I I think what it really hit me is that I was really, I, I think I was in just after college, I heard uh, Senator Rick Santorum from Pennsylvania. I'm sorry, it wasn't just after college. Some Sometime around 2010 or before, 20, I heard Rick Santorum, who was a Republican senator, just really put down poor people, like mm-hmm. just say ridiculous things. Um, uh, and, and a lot of people talk about this. Uh, Mich- Michelle Alexander and the new Jim Crow with Reagan saying welfare queens, you know, creating a right. drug problem that wasn't there in African-American communities. And just all these things, you know, pull yourself by your own bootstraps you know, do your own job. And I'm like, um, or poor people at, as being delinquent 
immoral. Mm-hmm. You know, we were poor. I'm like, I'm not delinquent or immoral. I mean, I've seen, yeah. I've said this before, I've seen rich charlatans and poor charlatans and middle class charlatans. It doesn't right. matter how much money you have. And, 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 and what I've seen is that if you have money and connections, you can get away with a lot of garbage that poor people can't. They would either be in jail mm-hmm. or, you know, they can't get off scot free. I mean, they can't get off because they don't have lawyers uh, or connections to stuff. And so that's where I saw a lot of, I've seen a lot of barriers, but what's been very hurtful, like, you know, when you hear the church talk like that, mm. and uh, especially because, and I talk about this in my book, that Jesus was poor. Yeah. Like he came, like his mom couldn't even make the normal offering. She gave an offering of turtle doves that it was on her to do it. Mary uh, with Joseph, when they presented him in the temple yeah. And most of Christians in history have been poor. Then again, you know, Joseph of Arimathea, I also talk Mm -hmm. about him. He was able to provide the tomb for Jesus. So I'm not saying that having money is like you're somehow ungodly if if you have more income than I do. That's not what I mean at all. It's just as you know, as you talked about, too, and that you can come to depend on money instead of God. For example, I'll give this example. True story. When I was in seminary, my mentor was a, you know, a local pastor uh, during a field experience. And he'd meet with us, you know, to talk about what was going on. And he told us a story. Hmm. He was preaching through Amos and um, just going verse by verse in scripture. Um, and one Sunday, uh, a man came up to him and said, you are straying. You need to just stick with what you've been teaching before. Hmm. And I think it talks about, you know, when justice shall roll down like a river. I I don't have Amos memorized. Yeah, I know, but that's definitely from Amos. (laughs) Yeah, but basically the man said to this pastor, his name was Pastor Ed, if you don't knock it off, I'm going to take my tithe and go somewhere else. Hmm being all social justice. And this is like in 2004. Okay. And, and the thing is the guy owned a car dealership. So I'm not sure how much money he tied, but just say it was a amount of money, like $50,000 or something I'm going to throw out there. And you can just, you know, I'm going to go to a different church. If you don't stop talking about these things. And Ed was like, I'm preaching straight from scripture. This, you know, I'm just, what do they call it? Bible exposition on yeah. those verses and on the commentaries and, and the, the, the owner of the car dealership didn't like it. And so he did leave. Ed's like, well, you can take your money with you. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I see how money is used to control people and, 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 and people might not even think about it, like threaten pastors or other people with withdrawing their ties. If the, ch- if the church doesn't run the way they like it. And I mean, I don't know. I just have never had that temptation. Maybe I'd be tempted to do it if I had money. So I can't really speak on that. But like I was, but the the, the repercussion is that, you know, that's a big chunk of money. If it were, a, you know, it could mean loss of staff and right. things at a church. So it it's not insignificant. And, and I've seen, you know, things like that over and over again. And so I think that, let me circle around. I am rich compared to most of the world because I live in America, right? Mm-hmm. I am so rich. Even even if I'm like lower middle class or whatever, I I yes, I have so many privileges and now um and I was rich when I was 
poor because I was born in America because poverty in America is nothing compared to the rest of the world, which I've seen with my own eyes. And so I just think that, and, and this is preaching to myself in Matthew 13, where Jesus says the cares of this world and wealth can choke out the gospel if mm-hmm. we're not careful. And you know, be in James, beware you rich people, how you treat the worker. And, you know, the, they're, they're crying out to you for their wages. And, you know, the, um, it's easier for, uh, you know, a camel to get through the eye of a needle than a rich person to get into heaven. But I'm talking to uh, myself. So it's because uh, I fall into that category. But, of course, Jesus had people that supplied his ministry. So I think it's, it's whether or not we're owned by our possessions and mm-hmm. what we can do about that. One of the um, stories that your book made me think about again is from, I think it's in Luke's gospel, where he calls, Jesus calls one of the tax collectors um, named Levi, and it says that he got up, left everything, and followed Jesus. And then the very next verse is the disciples and the Pharisees and the tax collectors at Levi's house for dinner. And Mm -hmm. so you're like, okay, he just left everything. And then he used his wealth to throw a party, like immediately. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and what's happening at that party is that he's bringing together his tax collector friends and Jesus's disciples. And so mm-hmm. he's using his wealth to actually connect these disparate groups of people and to introduce them to Jesus. Which yes, is, but it's really interesting because the way it's talked about is literally he left everything. But that doesn't. It can't mean that he sold everything or he couldn't have gone and had everybody over for dinner. So I just, I was thinking about that passage in reading your book and just the, exactly what you're talking about, that what can feel really nuanced, right? It it would be Mm -hmm. easier to either condemn wealth or to celebrate it rather than say, it really depends on how you use it. And to your point here, if you're living in America and you have what feels like very little, you actually have a lot, even in material terms, you have a mm-hmm, lot of wealth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I also think about, and this is a, you um, talk about Zacchaeus, right? About Zacchaeus uh, in your book. And he was a rich man who nevertheless felt worthless. And I would love for you to just remind us a little bit of that story for people who don't remember, you know, Sunday school when they were seven or who may- maybe never went to Sunday school and learned about Zacchaeus. But I'd love for you to talk about what Jesus offers to wealthy people who still feel an inner longing for more, who feel like the wealth is actually not enough to satisfy the hunger in my soul. Yeah, thank you, Amy Julia. And so Zacchaeus, you know, there's a song about him climbing the sycamore tree. And I have one in my yard, a sycamore tree, because he was short and he wanted to see Jesus for himself. You know, in the book, I speculate that maybe he had seen Jesus before or heard of him from John the Baptist or maybe saw the John the Baptist. But so the way that he got his wealth was cunningly because you could use violence as a tax collector to get the money. It's like a debt collector. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to get it for you by whatever means necessary, whether I have to throw you in jail, use violence. And so but he was a lot richer than, you know his peers, his Jewish peers, and they also considered him a traitor because, you know, he worked for Rome to collect the taxes from his people and did whatever necessary and use whatever necessary to get it. But um, he's, his his money wasn't enough to quell that emptiness and that loneliness and that, you know, that uh, thorn, you know, as uh, in his mind about who he was. And so 
he climbed the tree and a crowd was coming. Jesus was in the crowd. Jesus stopped and looked up to Zacchaeus and said, you know, I'm coming to come down because I'm coming to your house today. And in the first century for a rabbi that Jesus was just to even appear in Zacchaeus's home was a great honor. It was a show of hospitality and intimacy. It was a big deal that he chose to go to Zacchaeus's home. And Zacchaeus was so moved by Jesus's gesture and, you know, and I maintain it started happening before he met with Jesus. But at that point, he's like, you know, I'll pay back four times as much anything that I've robbed. Mm-hmm. And so Zacchaeus is an example of repentance, of turning from the life that he had towards God. And I think in that moment, as to your point and what we've been talking about, is that no matter how much money we have, we can't or don't have, we can't let money own us because God says you will either serve money or me and um, I'm always really fascinated in some way not fast I shouldn't use that word I'm always interested in that you know people you know that can meet all their bills go on whatever vacation they want um, put their kids in whatever schools they want they don't have to worry about just the day-to-day problems that uh, you know, a lot of people that I've had had to worry about with, you know, just meeting your basic bills, you know, you can, you're still depressed. Yeah. Um, some commit suicide. Uh, your fam I don't say yours, but, you know, collective families are torn. Money doesn't, you know, like they said, can't buy happiness or joy or peace. I think we can use the money that God's given us for God's ways, but to think that it's going to satisfy, it really doesn't. And I think, the book, I, uh, you know, The Way Up is Down, Becoming Yourself by Forgetting Yourself is taking the posture of Jesus, not using the money or power or influence, influence at our disposal for ourselves to be self-absorbed or self-interest. The way of Jesus is to use whatever God's given us and whatever station of life that we are for his and um for for God's kingdom. That's why Jesus is not my will, but yours be done. That's a life of self-sacrifice. And so I think that, you know, no matter if someone's listening and they're like, yeah, I don't really struggle. I can't identify with Marlena at all because this has never been a problem, but we can both identify in feeling sad or loneliness. And if we just live for ourselves, that's how we're going to be. So can you speak, because I so resonate with that. And as you know, as someone, you know, I have come from that place of stability as far as economics. And I've also had both personally and very much in my family and in my communities, such encounters with, well, of what you were just saying about anxiety, depression, um, and a lack of rich, deep connections. And I very much see that wealth can actually be a barrier to understanding the grace and richness of God. I'm curious, though, because I think for most people, especially in our like American mentality of, you know, working our way up the ladder and pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, that sense of choosing to sacrifice, choosing to lay it down, choosing to empty ourselves, that being desirable or like something that we would want to do. Can you give any examples of people who have done that and or just talk about what would actually motivate us to release our hold on 
wealth and possessions and all the things that we accumulate. Yeah. And so, gosh, you know, why would we do that? Well, it's the way of Jesus. He was had all wealth at his disposal, but he came to earth as a poor man and he set that aside so he can embody, you know, God's life in the flesh. He is God. And so as he met with people, he didn't have wealth to attract them. He didn't use the wealth that he could have out of his disposal to lure people and friends, you know, uh, to win friends and influence people. He didn't do that. He chose to set aside his divinity. You know, at one point the disciples were like, you know, this village didn't accept you. Can we call fire down and destroy them? And Jesus was like, no, that is not my way. And so I, I was, now that I'm obsessed with, why didn't he do that? He didn't mm-hmm. use those things that were at his disposal, but he came, uh, you know, the my book, The Way Up is Down. In, in scripture, Jesus says many of the first in this world will be last and many of the last will be first in the kingdom of God. And the greatest person in the kingdom of God is to be the servant of all. And he modeled that by his life. He served. And uh, we think about that in the upper room with the last supper. He, he, you know, bowed and he washed. He took on the role of a servant, not just there, but that was to be symbolic for them. He washed their dirty feet and only servants did that. But Jesus bowing to wash the disciples or anyone's feet and doing that, he put himself in a very vulnerable position and vulnerable to being kicked. You know, if you're, if mm-hmm. you're, if so, you're by someone's feet, they can kick you. You can yeah. allow yourself to be stabbed and hit in the back and the head or whatever. That is a very vulnerable position to be in because it is, it's just vulnerable. And so, you know, Jesus is basically saying, we're not supposed to be, we're not supposed to call the shots in our life. And I even think with the way the world is now, no matter how much money you have, um, you know, with like, for example, we're talking during the time of the pandemic. I mean, no matter how much money you have is not going to keep you from getting the virus if you're exposed to it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, money can't protect you from everything, can't protect you from death or sadness or or difficulty. It can make some things easier. But I think Jesus was, you know, paradox. That's the title of my book, The Paradox. Like he had more wealth and more power than anything, and he laid it aside to do God's will. And he sacrificed. And I don't understand why. I mean, the whole Bible is kind of like that way. In order to live, we have to die, die to ourselves, everything in us that's not of God. And, you know, in order to um, be raised up, you know, to be lifted up, he says, to be uplifted, we have to bow down and let God lift us up. And so why would we want to do that? It's because it's Jesus's way. It's countercultural. And it can even be countercultural in churches and Christianity. And so do I know any people that have done that? Yes. I mean, I think of Rich Mullins, who was, you know, Mm -hmm. died, I think it was in 1990 or 91, um, a Christian singer who he decided that um, he would only earn what like the average American earned, which I think was like $40,000. So all the rest of the money he made from his concerts and whatever he gave, he took a vow of poverty. And I'm not saying, I guess it's not true poverty if he made $40,000 a year, but enough to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Pope Francis could have lived in an opulent palace, but he's living in the guest quarters. Right. Uh, you know, a lot of saints in the church and women, they gave up their estates to found monasteries. And I'm not saying that everyone listening, that's what God's calling you to do. But you're in a position if, if you, you know, depending on your income, but you're in a position to help fund the gospel of life. 
there's enough money in the world and enough food and enough housing that people should not be poor. The only reason it, it it's that way is because people are greedy and, you know, only a few are able to get that and that a lot of that comes, and I'm not saying again that the listeners are doing this, but it becomes from exploiting the poor and workers. Like a lot of money is made on the exploitation on in, on the backs of the poor. Well, I don't disagree with you in terms of greedy, but I think what people often feel is fear. Like the, mm-hmm. that sense of I am, I just need to make sure that I survive and that my family survives. And I know people who are incredibly wealthy and are still saying, once I have X number of millions of dollars, then I'll know we're going to be okay. And I think okay. there is a sense of fear about survival that especially if we are not entrusting our lives to God and to the love of God, that really inhibits us from it being in that posture of generosity. And I'm thinking back to Zacchaeus again. I love the way you tell that story because you at least imagine that Zacchaeus has some knowledge of Jesus and that Mm -hmm. that's what prompted him to climb the sycamore tree. And not only that he had some knowledge of Jesus, but even some longing to be living a different way because it had to feel crappy to be a tax collector because even though you had all the money, you were exploiting people and you knew that. And anytime Mm -hmm. we demean the humanity of a fellow human being, we're demeaning ourselves as well because we're all in our Yes. So I have to imagine that he felt bad about himself, even though he wasn't going to stop what he was doing. And so then he's interested in Jesus. He climbs up the tree. Maybe he's had some thoughts about, oh, maybe I should give some money away. Maybe I should do my practice, these things differently. But I don't know that he would have if Jesus hadn't called him out, right? And been like, hey, I'm eating at your house. You're going to be associated with me now, and I'm going to be associated with you now, and then it's there. And so I do think there's a sense of, like, the grace of God interrupting us. But then what I see for Zacchaeus is joy and freedom. Yes. And so, yes, he had money. And, like, at the end of his encounter with Jesus, he had a lot less money. And Mm -hmm. that might be a hard reality for many of us to face. Like, oh, gosh, if I start following God, does that mean that I'm going to have less money? And it's like, well, it really might. But guess what he got in return? Love, joy, peace, freedom. Mm-hmm. But, and, and I think that's some of what you're getting at and some of what even motivated Jesus. I think Jesus was highly motivated by love mm-hmm. and that his way of being as sacrificial as it was also was connected so deeply to the love of God and to the love of peace yes. that it was incredibly fulfilling for him and obviously incredibly attractive to the people who encountered him and followed along. And for me, a lot of that, I have been able to understand that dynamic of possessions and wealth not being what satisfies, especially as I have encountered people who love more freely. And um, this leads me to people with intellectual disabilities in particular, that's been a lot of my experience of a freer love that is not, um, I mean, it's so funny, as you know, our daughter Penny has Down syndrome, and it's not that Penny doesn't love things. She has, like, we just repainted her room, and, I mean, she has so many opinions about what color should be (laughs) on her walls, and, like, she really does care about some things. But at the same time, she is, like, impossible to buy a gift for because what she wants is people. She wants mm. to have an experience with a person. She wants to eat a meal with a person. She, I mean, she just wants to be with and, and connecting with people. 
And so all of this brings me to just thinking about um, you have this little section about the awesome God group at your church. Um, and I just have to get you to talk about that for a minute to describe the group and describe what it's meant for the entire congregation. But also, like, why is that group in this book? Like, what does it have to do with these themes, with what we're talking about, with what you're writing about? Because I think they very much are interrelated, but I'd love for you to just tell us a little bit about that. Yes, uh, I love that. So there's a um, a group in my church called the Awesome God Group or the Awesome God Class, and it was named after Rich Mullins, um, interesting in Law Fiscal, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Our God is an Awesome God. But the people of the group chose their name, and they wanted to call themselves the Awesome God Group. And so the Awesome God Group is made of um, people with intellectual disabilities and their friends, so it's like a mix of people. And it's a Sunday school class, but it's also like they have not now because of the pandemic, but like they would have bingos once a month on Thursday night, like all sorts of social activities. And there's people in our church that friends that may not have intellectual disabilities, but are in in the Sunday school class or teach a Sunday school class with them. And then there's also proms and lots, just lots and lots of activities for, um, for those and led by those in the Awesome God class. And the way that our, that started was that my pastor, one of my pastors, the assistant pastor, uh, Pastor Joni, or I should say associate pastor, she, her sister Lynn, um, has an intellectual disability. Uh, yeah. I don't know exactly what, but, um, and when she was younger, she never felt she'd go from church to church and didn't really feel like Lynn was embraced until she, went to a United Methodist church who loved and embraced Lynn and, and Joni. And, and then that's why she decided to go to the United Methodist denomination is now United Methodist pastor, my, one of my pastors. And so I went, she's been at the church, I believe 18 years. And she wanted, when she came, she wanted a place for Lynn to also be, feel comfortable. And so they, st- they started with people, um, the awesome God class. And, you know, so on different Sundays, they might read part of the scripture or help usher. And I won't say they, but the members of the awesome um, people with intellectual disabilities. And one reason that my husband, Sean, and when we saw this, they are so integrated to our church. They're not like mm. apart or just like cast in the corner they're like an integral part of our church so much so that you know like several of them sit right in the front row when the pastor's preaching because that's where they want to sit and sometimes you know one in particular that I love I don't know if she has like a tick or something but she'll like yell and engage in the sermon and we all love it like you're not interrupting it's showing us the joy of the Lord yeah and Yeah, I feel like our church is, like, a lot of people say our church is really warm and welcoming, and Sean and I think that our church is so special because of the Awesome God class, Mm -hmm. and we don't really see it as, or the Awesome God group, we don't see it as, oh, we're ministering, we're doing this great deed for them. We're like, we are being ministered to, we see the face of Christ in them, and we are very humble, like, Right. We have a lot to learn. And I know Henry now and other people uh, talk about this. And you, Amy, Julia, it's a good and perfect gift to mm. to us. Yeah. And yeah. we are very humbled by them. And the, what it has to do with everything I'm saying is that in the world's eyes, if we're thinking from non-gospel 
lens. It's like uh, these are the lowest people. They don't have like high functioning, most of them, like jobs. They're not oh. making millions of dollars unless their family has left them an inheritance. They never talk about money. They just plain love and show us, I think, an aspect of God that we definitely wouldn't get, uh, not concerned with status or how much money you have or don't have. They don't care. They just are interested in you and we're interested in them. We love them. They are part of us and we're part of them. Mm, So beautiful. I want to end with a couple of questions to bring us back somewhat where we started to just spiritual life. One of the things I love, you start the book by saying that you're reading the riot act to God because you're really mad. And it feels like you are someone who lives in an ongoing conversation with God that is not what many people might think of as how prayers would go, right? Where you're like expressing disappointment, anger, frustration, as well as hearing yourself, you know, from God being put in your place. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. you have this kind of intimate conversational relationship with God, which I love. Um, You also have some very, and you call yourself even in this podcast, like a contemplative monastic, but you also have this very specific call in your own life to social action, like to getting out there. You have one part in the book where you write about how fasting and praying through Lent one season led to specific action on behalf of, um, refugee children essentially Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but i wanted to ask you just about how that private and personal intimacy with god and that social and public action in the world are how do you see those things as being related to each other yeah uh the only way i can love people and love my neighbor as myself well is if i am in tune and paying attention to god and so some seasons are busier than others but I need to do whatever it takes, prayer, fasting, um, giving. They all are supposed to go together, prayer, fasting, and giving of giving. Then I'm. there are seasons where I'm not active. I know it's interesting. I mean, people do call me an activist. I'm like, I guess I am, but I'm just putting scripture into practice like I think we all should be, right? Maybe not perfectly. And so, so I've just come off of a season of a lot of activity, and I'm kind of closing back in right now because I'm starting a school program. But where I – my world gets a little smaller where I focus on, you know, try to focus on God and what's only right around me, allowing myself to be filled with God's life again, through scripture, reading prayer, whatever fills me up being out in nature and letting God be at work in me. And I trust that as I'm filled with God and listening to God, that that'll give me the energy to be active, to help the refugees or immigrants, asylum seekers or whatever God calls me to do. And, you know, we cannot do everything. So there's only certain things I can do in my life and my spheres. Mm-hmm. But I think that some people work for social justice without being filled with God. And you can see the anger and the meanness and the division. Mm-hmm. But I think if we're going to live as Christians and, and do what Jesus tells us to do in Scripture, you know, Matthew 25, feed the poor, you know, name you can name it then we need to do it with a right heart and right spirit. And we can't do that if we're only just acting and never being filled by God. So it's like a, it's a back and forth thing. You know, I'm filled with God's life. I go out, I empty myself on behalf of in service. Then I come back in to be filled with God. And it could be like mother Teresa did this every single day. She'd sit in prayer and then, go out and serve, but she always spent time in prayer in the you know mornings before she went out to serve. And I don't think that we can love people. We can't love our neighbors. We can't act 
in Jesus's name if we're, if that's not part of our rhythms because we'll burn out and treat people badly. Totally. So just as we kind of start wrapping up here, we talk a little bit about sitting in prayer. I'm thinking about a listener who thinks that sounds great. I would love to be filled up with God, but I and then go out and give that away. But I don't know what that actually involves. I don't know how to pray or I feel like I'm doing it wrong or am I allowed to say this or that? Like, how would you offer an invitation to regular prayer uh, for someone who feels hesitant about that? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, some people think you have, I mean, prayer is physical. You can't, you know, the Orthodox and Catholic talk about it's bodily. You get on your knees or like prostrate. But, you know, I'm thinking about someone that's like working, has a really tough work schedule, um, you know. And so anything that can focus your attention on God, I believe, is prayer, gazing upon God. So let's say you are working in a corporate or real busy environment or even at a school, wherever you're at. I'm thinking, what can you do for lunchtime? Mm-hmm. Can you like step away from uh, your office space or wherever you're at and just be quiet and settle down or maybe listen to scripture on, you know, on, a, on an audio thing, maybe go for a walk outside nature. So prayer, it, let me say this again. Prayer is whatever you do, I think is contemplation. You put your gaze upon God. Mm. You mentioned that I just talked to God and tell them how angry or happy I am. That's because they did that in scripture. If you read the Psalms, the Psalms were like, God, you know, Martin Lingo, this sucks. And I'm just telling you, I'm not really happy with you right now. And God's not afraid of that. Or God, you seem very far away. I want to follow you. I want to do what's right, but I don't know help. Please help. That's prayer. Yep. It's a, um, and yes, there are prescribed prayers of the church, depending if you're at a liturgical church. I think that's beautiful. But any way that you can focus on God. So I'm sitting right here um, in this podcast. Um, I, my house is on a corner. I have one window on one street, another window on an, another, and this mm. corner lot. Let's say I was super busy and I just really couldn't get out. I might take a moment after this podcast just to sit and look out the window and, and, and pay attention to the flowers, the birds, the butterfly that goes by. And think about God and it could be a song. Maybe music really gets you. You could play music that draws your mind to God. There's a thousand different ways uh, to pay attention to God. And I think that's what prayer is. And God's not going to be upset. If you don't know how to pray, just say, God, I don't know how to pray or talk to someone that can maybe guide you. Or, you know, maybe for you, it's, um, we mentioned music, playing an instrument that leads you or cooking or washing dishes. I don't know. Anything where you can be led to God. And I honestly have to say, you know, when my, even still now, I have three daughters and, but when they were little, like the only time I got to myself was in the bathtub. So (laughs) that was my time of maybe reading books that turned my mind toward God and just thinking and talking to God. Well, that's actually a perfect place to close because I think that you have given us a book that turns our thinking towards God, where scripture is woven in, but there's also just this real permission for that open conversation. And there are lots of ways, I think, with any chapter in this book to actually um, make it into a form of prayer, of conversation with God, of connection with God, and of contemplation of who God is. And I really agree with you that if and as we are being filled up with the love of God, 
that is what enables us without even sometimes knowing this is what we're doing to empty ourselves, right? Like mm-hmm. that's, we're overflowing. So there's no sense of fear that I'm going to be, uh, and not to say, I mean, I often have fear that if I'm giving something over to God, I'm going to lose it forever. But at least theoretically, being filled up with God's love frees me to give of myself to other people without that mm-hmm. sense of fear because I'm so, what I've been doing actually, I've been on the water because we're on vacation the past couple of weeks and I've been watching this sailboat that's anchored. Somebody has a sailboat and it's anchored out in the water in front of the house where I've been staying. And I've just been watching it in the morning, kind of rocking back and forth and thinking about that as like a picture of being held in Mm. God's love. And that because of that, I don't know, that picture has been a real gift to me in thinking I need to keep going back to being held in God's love before I try to go sailing, right? Before I try to move and act and do things in the world. And I think that's the picture you give us as well, being filled up by that presence and that grace and care before we try to uh, give that to anyone else uh, so that we don't burn out and so that we don't get cynical and um, so that we don't hurt people in the process. So Marlena, thank you again for taking this time to share your wisdom, your insight, your heart for justice, your heart for peace, and your beautiful words and your beautiful story. Thank you for being here. Thank you for writing The Way Up is Down. And for anyone who's listening, I do really highly recommend that you check out this book and Marlena's other work because it is a gift to us. Thank you, Amy, Julia, and thank you to the listeners. I'm really glad to have been here. Thank you for listening to Love is Stronger Than Fear. We'll be sure to note the references to scripture and to Rich Mullins and anything else that came up in the show notes. And if you were encouraged or equipped or empowered or curious because of this episode, I do invite you to share it with other people. I invite you to subscribe to this podcast so you'll have more conversations like it filling your uh, podcast feed in the weeks to come. And of course, it is always a help if you give this podcast a quick rating or review wherever you find these podcasts so that other people can find it. I also want to give some thanks. Thanks to our co-host, Breaking Ground. There are more podcasts, articles, videos, all of which reflect a Christian perspective on how to think about the past, understand the present, and explore redemptive possibilities for the future. You can find out more at breakingground.us. Thanks also to Jake Hansen for editing this podcast, to Amber Beery, my social media coordinator who does more to support this show than anyone will ever know. I do hope and pray that as you go into your day today, you will carry with you the peace that comes from believing that love is stronger than fear.